You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. He's in the building! Drink the moment. Drink it. I said, empty your mind. Coquettish and coy. Ow! Ow! What? Wickedly talented. More than great. It was historic. Crack is world. Oh, good for you. I have to apologize. One of the hottest. Welcome back to The Reheat, a podcast that re-examines the hottest celebrity news and scandals of yesteryear and asks, how would we react to the same events if they transpired today? I'm your co-host, Sarah Sahagian. And I'm Stefasan, your other co-host. And in today's episode, we are going to dive deep into the unrelenting saga that is one Mel Gibson, an actor who made a major name for himself in Hollywood in the 80s and 90s, despite endlessly problematic and offensive behavior that began right around the time his career did. This is an actor who has been anti-Semitic, homophobic, sexist. He's pretty much like the egot of being an asshole and yet has never had to face quote-unquote cancellation, which goes to show so-called cancel culture does not have the power a lot of you think it does. Sorry. Sarah, can you believe Mel Gibson is still very much a thing in 2022? No. Why the hell does Jodie Foster still like him? That's, I think, one of the great mysteries of the world. No. Why the hell does this man still have a platform anywhere? And I love Jodie, so that is just devastating Mm -hmm. to know. (laughs) Well, let's start at the beginning, shall we? So Mel was born in New York to Irish parents and spent much of his youth growing up in Australia. He did a lot of stage work in his early career, but once he hit the screen, he hit it big. Critics said he reminded them of everyone from Steve McQueen to Clark Gable to Humphrey Bogart. I mean, these are big names. But that's how strong his star power and charm was just a fact. His career took off relatively quickly. He started Mad Max, The Year of Living Dangerously, Lethal Weapon, its sequels, Maverick, The Patriot, What Women Want, my personal very problematic favorite, Signs. And for over two decades, he was a full-fledged movie star, incredibly bankable, with most of his movies in that era pulling in $100 million or more domestically. And he could pull off playing the lead in historical and action epics and romantic comedies. That's pretty rare. They also all resembled his brand. Big, brash, bold, aggressive. He kind of had a thing going. He was a little bit like Chris Hemsworth with maybe a little bit more skill. Take that back. I'm so sorry, (laughs) Sarah. I mean, come on, of the time, of the time. (laughs) He was also people's first sexiest man alive in 1985. That's a hell of an endorsement. Um, And he was also Forbes' most powerful celebrity in 2004. And when it came to his personal life, from 1980 to 2011, he was married to Robin Moore, and together they had a whopping seven Mm -hmm. children. At the time, this was considered one of the longest-lasting Hollywood relationships. And Robin was with him up until his public image began to fall apart. He often credited her for staying by his side through endless trouble. Now, I'm pretty confident most of us have at least one Mel Gibson movie we loved. I already said mine was What Women Want, which I would probably come to regret. I also loved Signs because I am a M. Night Shyamalan apologist for life. Um, And so I'm just curious, Sarah, what would that be for you? And this is, of course, despite everything that's gone on. You've got to have one, I'm sure. I guess if I had to pick, I'd pick Braveheart. I mean, my my mother's family is Scottish, so 
you know, it, it seemed kind of mm. cool, like I was learning about my heritage. I don't know how historically accurate the film is. And also, I even in Braveheart, I never found him handsome. I never understood him as a sex symbol. But overall, I feel like it's a good movie. Yeah, I mean, that was a huge one for him. And listen, before all of this shit happened, I did find him very attractive. I hate to say it now. <laughs> but here's the thing. He was very popular. I mean, that's a fact. Those are movies that I still even go back and watch. And this is a question we ask a lot in our episodes, but is it okay for us to like those knowing mm-hmm. what's happened since? What do you think, Sarah? Um, listen, life is hard. If it makes you happy to watch Signs or Braveheart or What Women Want or any of these movies, I'm I'm cool with it. I would try to watch it in a way that doesn't give him any money. Yeah. I think that there are ways to get around that. Many people participate in the creation of a movie. There's the crew, there's the rest of the cast, there are the writers, there are so many people involved that the fact that one person is awful, I do feel bad for the rest of the people who their work is kind of tainted by association when they might even have been victimized by his temper too, right? So in some ways, I do think that it's almost a tribute to the people who had to suffer by working with this person to keep watching their work and to understand that what he did was horrible and not venerate him, but to respect the rest of the project and to view it as an art piece that that can still have some degree of, of relevance. Yeah, I think that's perfectly put. If that piece of art makes you feel good, you are more than welcome to go ahead and watch it. It doesn't mean that you support what he said or done over the years. Mm -hmm. That's just a fact and that's okay. (laughs) Now, if you ever take a look at Mel's history or his resume, you'll notice a significant gap from 2003 to about 2011. During that period, his personal and professional life hit what we can best call a speed bump, and it had him effectively blacklisted in Hollywood, with Mel really only working low-budget, small studio films, including delicious titles as Get the Gringo, Bloodfather, Boss Level, The Expendables 3, and Daddy's Home 2. (laughs) Yeah. It was not good, Sarah. But why did it happen? Well, thanks to an infamous DUI in 2006. Here are the details if you are in need of a refresher. Now, on July 28th, 2006, Mel was arrested by Sheriff's Deputy James Mee of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department for driving under the influence while speeding in his car with an open bottle of tequila on his lap. According to the arrest report, Mel grew aggressive and enraged when the officer wouldn't let him drive home and said to him, quote, fucking Jews. The Jews are responsible for all the wars in the world. Are you a Jew? End quote. Now, the man was Jewish. Mel didn't really actually know that in the moment. And he also later referred to a female officer at the station as, quote, sugar tits, which I'm sure a lot of you will remember as the word of that year. Mm -hmm. Now, that arrest report was leaked to TMZ, naturally, and soon after, Mel apologized in an interview with Diane Sawyer, saying it was a, quote, moment of insanity. Here's a brief clip. Are those anti-Semitic words? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Sounds horrible. And I'm ashamed of that. That came out of my mouth. And I'm not that. That's not who I am, you know. We have a world in which alcohol is used to excuse behavior. It's always, uh, well, alcohol is used to kill pain. And, uh, um, And it is no excuse, by the way. It's not a good enough excuse. If the police officer had been black, What would you have said? Who knows? I would have, I'd have to get loaded again and tell you. 
and then be in those conditions again because it's unpredictable what's going to come flying out. Sir, please tell me your immediate thoughts because right now, I mean, none of you can see it, but she's got a big expression on her face. This is actually bizarre, but the person he reminds me of is our our deceased mayor of Toronto, Rob Ford. Remember the oh, that's, yes. interviews he did when he was mm. having the height of, of his sort of issues and scandals where he basically kind of tried to excuse everything he did, including talking about how he had more than enough pussy to eat at home on his substance issues. Yeah. He had a lot of problems with substance issues, but he was kind of unapologetic about it. And I remember, I think, I think Doug was actually in the interview too. They did an interview with Matt Lauer, whom I friggin' hate. Yeah. Matt Lauer was actually asking him hard questions about like, can you be the mayor and constantly be using these substances? And then they were like, well, what about you when you're loaded, when you're drunk? Like they just weren't really admitting wrongdoing and were just treating substances like the reason for everything. And substance issues are totally real. Substance use disorder is a disease like any other, but In that way, just like because it's a disease, just like cancer, just like pneumonia, good people can get sick with that condition and so can really shitty people. And when really shitty people get that condition, um, they often try to use it as an excuse for every awful thing they do. And it's not an excuse for being a horrible anti-Semite and implying that you might have said something super racist against Black people too if the police officer had been Black. Like that just sort of like, Remember when Ivanka Trump tried to defend um, her father by saying that he discriminates against everyone? <laughs> like, like, oh, he doesn't hate any specific groups. He hates he, everyone. He hates everyone, right? So it, it's it's equal. It's not a prejudice if he hates yeah. everybody. Um, that's not a friggin' defense. And it's what is no. with men of this generation of being like, yeah, but I'm horrible to everyone. And so that makes me okay. Like, what is with them? <laughs> I mean, perfectly summarized. <gasps> Amen. And please, men, do not do this. It actually makes you sound much worse. We can read between the lines. Now, while Mel did apologize for the incident throughout that interview, and I have to say, I don't love Diane Sawyer most of the time, but I love that stern voice. She's mm-hmm. like an angry parent with him. Mm-hmm. Um, Mel insists he isn't at all anti-Semitic in the interview and carries no bigoted views. He keeps insisting that they just poured out when he was drunk. And anyone who can't understand that simply doesn't understand alcoholism. Okay. Well, that's obviously a tough statement. He also said that he wanted to meet with Jewish leaders to help him, quote, discern the appropriate path for healing. What? And after he explained that the words may have come out of him because he had been recently ruminating on the conflict in the Middle East. What? Yes. <laughs> if it makes sense. And it also all added fuel to the fire because his 2004 film, which had come out two years before, Passion of the Christ, I don't think any of us can forget that, that had already been criticized for its depiction of Jewish people as bloodthirsty villains, keen Mm -hmm. and Mm hellbent on killing Christ. Now, after his arrest, Mel's publicist said he entered rehab to battle his alcoholism, which he admitted had been going on for many years and in fact began when he was just 13 years old. He also had admitted that he had severe anger issues throughout his entire life. In a Vanity Fair 2011 cover profile, which I just want to add, does oddly defend him throughout the story. Mm -hmm. It also doesn't take very kindly to those who called him out over the years. But anyway, now in that piece, a few directors he's worked with over the years note that they never even knew he had a drinking problem. Jillian Armstrong noted, quote, addicts are very good at hiding their addictions. And Kim Winther said, quote, he deflects. He 
never talked about his personal life, always talked about everybody else. And Lethal Weapon director Richard Donner, who was a close friend of Mel's, said he was shocked to learn the actor was drinking five pints for breakfast before shooting. And that, quote, there's a lot of anger and hostility under Mel's surface. Now, the magazine also noted that a week before auditioning for 1979's Mad Max, Mel got into a fight at a party that left him with a broken jaw. The only lesson he learned, he said, was, quote, if anybody even looks at me sideways, I'm cracking first. Just devastate him and don't get him once, get him a few times. Make sure he can't get up and do anything to me. This isn't the first time he was, I'm just going to be honest, an asshole. Um, If we go all the way back to the 90s, he'd made homophobic remarks to a Spanish Uh newspaper, and he was actually also accused of homophobia with Braveheart, which featured a character who a lot of people considered to be an archetypal, sort of stereotypical gay character and was offensively flamboyant. It was criticism that didn't really explode, but it was there. And for that movie, he actually won Oscars for Best Director and Best Picture. He excused the first for being a drunken faux pas and didn't comment on the second. Why has all of this shit that he's said been so easily brushed under the rug? It's surprising to me that these people he worked with never noticed these things or at least claimed to. And I wonder, is everybody purposely turning a blind eye or did they really not notice? Oh, I think it's, uh, you know, an informal conspiracy of silence. Like, it's like with Harvey Weinstein. Okay, Look at all of the male superstars he worked with. Brad Pitt actually knew that he victimized yes. women because he intervened to protect Gwyneth Paltrow. So that's somebody who actually knew that. I hate Brad Pitt. But this, and this is just another Same. reason. Like Matt Damon, George Clooney worked with Brad. These people talk. You don't think that it ever came up, but he was powerful. He was influential. And it's a similar thing with Mel Gibson. He made a lot of money for the industry. In some ways, he was too big to fail. As you said, his movies, many of which were not that good, easily earned over $100 million. The film industry for years has made excuses for its biggest stars and covered things up. And and their co-stars often are afraid to speak out because they know that their bosses, essentially the studios, the big producers, will be upset about destroying the reputation of a golden goose. So no one really gets to say anything. And then why would Vanity Fair make excuses? Well, they want access to those stars. They want to do interviews. They don't want to piss off the publicists, the studios. So I, I really do think that everybody at least suspected he was horrible. Um, yeah. But they had this they had this incentive to cover it up so that they could all keep their jobs. And on one level, I relate to that. If you're a, a small cog in the Hollywood machine and you're just trying to keep your job and earn your living, but for the more powerful people who might have been able to step in, like they are complicit and I do blame them. I think you're totally right. And I think also this was part of his brand, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. he was this sort of brash, bad boy Mm -hmm. type. I don't even like using that, but I mean, Mm -hmm. it was his whole personality. So I think, I'm assuming, a lot of the people he worked with and also just audiences would kind of see this as, oh, that's just who he is. That's fine. He doesn't actually mean anything by it. That's why we actually love him. It's like these kind of funny quirks. Now, bigotry is not a funny quirk, but I think this was also a different time where we were really sanitized as audiences. Uh Unless you were picking up Vanity Fair and someone who was very keen on knowing what's happening behind the scenes, you didn't really know what he was saying before this incident in 2006. So 
I don't know. I I agree with you. I think a lot of people were choosing to just ignore it and excuse it. Mm -hmm. So Mel's career continued to flatline for several years at this point, and his name became more associated with his anti-Semitism than his films. Still, many in the industry insisted he be forgiven, including close friends, as we said, Jodie Foster, Whoopi Goldberg, and Robert Downey Jr., all of whom I love, so that's devastating to know. Now, after the DUI in 2006, WME chief Ari Emanuel wrote an op-ed for the Huffington Post saying, quote, people in the entertainment community, whether Jew or genteel, need to demonstrate that they understand how much is at stake in this by professionally shunning Mel Gibson and refusing to work with him, even if it means a sacrifice to their bottom line. Now, that op-ed really traveled and it really hit people hard in the industry, but I don't know how much of a difference it made. But... Things reached an all-new fever pitch in 2010. A year before, Mel's wife, Robin, of nearly 30 years, filed for divorce, and the settlement was said to be the highest in Hollywood history at over $400 million. The couple reportedly did not have a prenup. Get a prenup, guys. Now, soon after, he began dating Oksana Grigorieva, with whom he shared daughter Lucia. But the relationship was incredibly ill-fated because in July 2010, he was recorded making an incredibly abusive phone call to her. Here's a brief clip. Brace yourself. I don't work around in tight clothes. I stay at home for most of the time. public and it's a embarrassment to me. You look like a on heat. And if you get raped by a pack, it's your fault. All right? Because you provoked it, you are provocatively dressed all the time with your fake boobs. You feel you have to show off in tight outfits and tight pants and stuff. You see your from behind. And that green thing today was enough. That's provocative. Okay? Um, So just to be clear, as that is a brief bit of the call, in the entire duration, he accuses Oksana of lying and embarrassing him, slut shames and objectifies her, he's racist and sexist, and accuses her of being a terrible mother who does not love him or their child who can actually be heard crying in the background. He calls Oksana a whore, a bitch, a cunt, and a gold digger, and says specifically that if she got, quote, raped by a pack of N-words, she would be to blame. I want I want to make all of this clear because this recording is beyond inexcusable and offensive on so many different levels. Oksana, who remains calm and quiet through much of it, was hit with this tirade after bringing up to Mel an incident in which he allegedly hit her so hard that he broke her teeth while she was carrying their daughter. He goes on to say that she deserved it and has been living a gravy train life and that, quote, I'm threatening, I'll put you in a fucking rose garden, you cunt. You understand that? Because I'm capable of it. Get a fucking restraining order. For what? What are you going to get a restraining order for? For me being drunk and disorderly? For hitting you? End quote. Despite there being evidence of him admitting to this very incident in this very phone call, and Oksana saying that it wasn't the only time he was physically abusive toward her, Mel later pleaded no contest to a misdemeanor battery charge and only served probation, court-ordered counseling, and paid $600 in fines. Oksana also got a restraining order against him to protect herself and her daughter, and in retaliation, he got one against her. (laughs) Needless to say, they split. Sarah... How the hell did he get away with this? It's disgusting. Like, this is completely inexcusable behavior. You are abusing your wife. Like, obviously, 
the anti-Semitic and racist and horrible things he's said before are inexcusable as well. Like, I'm not trying to say that the only thing that matters is hitting someone because you can hurt people and communities of people with your words. But this is like, he physically wounded somebody while she was carrying a baby. So he could have hurt the baby too. And this is supposed to be someone he loves. This is supposed to be his partner. Like, don't think he loves her at all. (laughs) No, absolutely it's just inexcusable. It shows you, you can't just write all of this off as I I was drunk, right? Like this is a pattern yeah. of behavior that is getting more and more dangerous, more and more threatening. And he threatens to kill her. Like he yeah. actually, and he doesn't just sort of slip up and say it. He explains that he's capable of it. He really puts a fine point on his plan to kill her. Yeah, and Oksana was not a name, you know? She still is not somebody who's very, who's famous by any means. And he kind of had that over her. And if you listen to that clip, if you even read the transcript, it's so frightening Mm -hmm. and he's so vicious. And I do want to add that he was allegedly sober. He never said that he was drunk at the time. Mm -hmm. He actually didn't use that as an excuse in this instance. Oh, wow. This is one of the more upsetting moments in his timeline and the fact that it was a huge story at the time. I mean, I remember the way the world exploded talking about this and yet nothing came of it. Mm -hmm. It says a lot about also the way domestic violence stories are handled and the way men do sometimes have an upper hand just because they're a name. Mm He said it in the call. He doesn't deny it. Yeah. Now, before we dive into so many more of Mel's faux pas and forgivings, let's take a quick break, shall we? After this incident with Oksana, Mel was dropped by his agency, William Morris Endeavor. And in an interview with Deadline, in hopes of repairing the PR mess, Mel said, quote, I've never treated anyone badly or in a discriminatory way based on their gender, race, religion, or sexuality, period. I don't blame some people for thinking that, though, from the garbage they heard on those leaked tapes, which have been edited. You have to put it all in the proper context of being in an irrationally heated discussion at the height of a breakdown, trying to get out of a really unhealthy relationship. It's one terribly awful moment in time said to one person in the span of one day and doesn't represent what I truly believe or how I've treated people my entire life. End quote. Make of that what you will. Now, yeah. shortly after, Jodie Foster enlisted him for a comeback, casting him as the lead in her 2011 film, The Beaver. It flopped. It was not very good. But it also started, yeah, but it also started to warm him up again to audiences and Hollywood. We can thank Jodie for that. Now, when he took up a lead role in Daddy's Home 2 alongside Mark Wahlberg, what a duo. What a winning <laughs> duo. <laughs> it's worth noting that Mark Wahlberg is rapping by Ari Emanuel, yep. the uh-huh. very same person who wrote that Huffington Post op-ed just years before against Mel. Uh-huh. And I think this is a great example of the way that Hollywood's so-called cancellations are often very short-lived when it comes to bankable movie stars. Yep. I mean, this man had such a moving op-ed that changed so many people's minds yep. and he took it back in years. I yep. mean, it's ridiculous. 
Now, in 2016, it came Mel's true comeback, one that might have you wondering if he had ever really been blacklisted. He directed the massive World War II epic Hacksaw Ridge, starring Andrew Garfield. It was one of the biggest films of the year. It picked up six Oscar nominations, including for Mel's directing, and it won two. It also won rave reviews, along with a standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival, and it grossed a whopping $164 million worldwide. Just to put that into perspective, that was four times what it cost to make. And it proved that all these years later, Mel still has a ton of power when it comes to profit. A Hollywood Reporter article at the time declared he was, quote, no longer a persona non grata and that the movie had allowed his reputation to, quote, thaw and that it granted him a forceful comeback. <laughs> what a way to put it. Um, Sue Kroll, president of Worldwide Marketing and Distribution at Warner Brothers, even said, quote, I've known Mel for many years and his talents as a filmmaker are undeniable. He is a gifted storyteller and has created some really exceptional films. Meanwhile, Hacksaw Ridge producer David Permute, who is gay and Jewish, said while he was hesitant to work with Mel, he soon changed his mind, explaining, quote, he's not the person some people interpret him to be on the surface. Ask anyone involved with this film. Above the line, below the line, they all revered him. The crew would lay in front of the tracks for Mel. It was an amazing experience and a learning experience for me because I got to know the man whom I never really knew. I think Mel has been misunderstood by people who may not know him, but nobody can take his talent away. Ultimately, I think time heals. Sarah, does time indeed heal? No, not everything, especially if you haven't done anything to atone. I mean, what has he done to atone for sowing the seeds of hatred against marginalized groups, for hitting the mother of his child and possibly traumatizing the child who was there and witnessed it? Like, no, that is BS. The way he's being described here, he sounds like a charming sociopath, right? Like somebody who can turn it on when he needs to, when it's in his interests and can get you on his side. And it is very easy to be manipulated by these people. And, you know, probably a lot of movie stars are charming sociopaths, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a competitive industry that's probably gives you an edge in making it. I'm not saying they all are. I'm just saying he's probably not the only one and he's definitely not the first. God, I totally agree. I also just, you know, these people are talking about him as if he's a god. And I don't think that's Uh an exaggeration. I mean... This man, David Permute, the producer, he completely redeems him in every way. He couldn't Mm -hmm. be more effusive. And I think you're right. I mean, because it's not just the fact that he's so charming and he's so kind on set. I believe that he is because, listen, over years, there's been so many reports of cast and crews who said that he's amazing to work Mm -hmm. with. He's so kind. People couldn't even tell that he had a drinking problem. Um, Only his closest knew that he had anger issues. So I believe that to a degree, but I also think... It's very strange to me when people can forgive and forget what's happened in the past. But also, I mean, one thing that I just wanted to add is the date 2016 is is also interesting because at this time, Donald Trump was, you know, was very much running for president and yeah. the media was normalizing him and his hateful beliefs. So the bar had been lowered and it was a great time for hateful people like Mel Gibson to make a comeback. He was in some ways the perfect celebrity for the Trump era, right? I mean, everyone was obsessed with all these white guys who, quote, said what they meant, right? And spoke yeah. their truth. No one says what they mean more than Mel. I, I 
I do not like yes. what he means. I I hate it. But that man, that man does not censor himself. At least, I mean, maybe on set sometimes. But when he's when he's angry, he he's a very clear communicator. Yeah, and actually, he even made headlines when he saluted Trump once in an event. So there mm-hmm. you go. You're not at all wrong. And the majority of the audiences who go to pay Mel are older. They don't even know about cancel culture. And if Mm -hmm. they do, they think it's bullshit. Um, They're right wing. They're more conservative. So it's not me or you, which is why we didn't go see Hacksaw Ridge. But he's maintained that same fan base for quite a bit of time. These people rely on him as a movie star. So he's certainly serving their interests. Let's put it that way. Uh Now, by this point, Mel also got new representation. So he was officially back There's no denying that. And he was um, represented by the very esteemed CAA. He also has currently over 10 projects in the works. He's set to direct Lethal Weapon 5 after the blessing of late director Richard Donner. He's working away on a sequel to The Passion of the Christ. I don't know who wants that. What? How do you have a sequel to that? I don't don't want a sequel to that would possibly be. What happens in the sequel? As... Okay, I'm just confused about the concept for this movie. I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. I, he's set to star in the John Wick spinoff series, The Continental on Stars, which I want to note was backed by Lionsgate, which has actually been a company that Mel has worked with numerous times over the years. So they really bank on him, literally. What I think is interesting, too, is that very few journalists have asked Mel about his transgressions and ultimate redemption since Hacksaw Ridge. And when they have, there's there seems to be a lot of unearned sympathy in those conversations. For example, here's Mel speaking with Peter Travers and happily discussing how the past is very much the past in a 2016 interview. We're all going to have those moments, and it's being able to stand strong on that wind, you know. Well, you had that moment. You had that 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, sure. This is a this was a big deal, where yeah. after Apocalypto comes out, you get the DUI. Oh, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, but what... Yeah. How do you rise above it as you have? Well, you have to because it's like it's a it's a like a a tsunami of crap that hits you, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden. And you know, you okay? I'm 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 on eight double tequilas in the back of a cop car, having a nervous breakdown. You know, I said some stupid, <laughs> and it's like you know, you wake up the next day and like ah, and it's like you know, you know, I made all the necessary mea culpas and all that sort of stuff. But ten years is a long time to think about that. So you can't dwell on it. You got to just move ahead, do the work and get better. And quite truly, you know, if you're branded as some kind of hater or something, I've never had an action that sort of supports that theory. It is so hard not to cringe hearing Peter giggle and make Mel sound like a heroic phoenix rising Mm -hmm. from the ashes. Mm -hmm. And Mel himself makes it sound as if everything that happened was so funny that it's no big deal in history. And if you listen to that entire interview, bless you, because it's tough to get through the way that they kind of joke around about the things that happened. And Mel clearly feels like he's moved on. And why not? Because that movie did so damn well. Why shouldn't he feel that he's been fully redeemed? Sarah, I gotta ask, and you know, this is our line of work too. We know people like this. Why do some journalists behave this way? What's in it for them? I don't want to, I completely excuse away journalists who go easy on someone like Mel, but there definitely is a power differential for most journalists when it comes to somebody like a a Mel Gibson, right? I mean, Diane Sawyer went after him, but Diane Sawyer is a superstar. So I do think like a lot of this is 
there are these systemic issues in the entertainment industry and entertainment journalists like are part of this industry and are pretty a low ranking part and they have to maintain their relationships with the PR people. Sometimes they have to do a certain interview to get the other interview they really want. They don't want to alienate the studios. So I don't know. Like, I think on some level, it's hard to say individuals need to be held accountable for not holding Mel accountable when it's the entire system that's to blame. Yeah. Maybe that's a cop-out. Like, maybe I'm being too generous, but that's how I, that's how I feel about this situation. No, I think you're right. And I think it's complicated. I have such a bone to pick with what journalism has become in Mm -hmm. terms of celebrity profiles and interviews over the last five, maybe to 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's so sanitized. There's such a distance between the subject and the interviewer. And that's because we just don't have the access that we used to have. Mm -hmm. And that's because celebrities are way more keen now on protecting their image in this social media age where there is so much of them. But it's not to the value of the journalist, it's not to the value of the reader because we're not actually learning anything. We're not Mm -hmm. getting anything out of these conversations. I learned nothing from that one, Mm -hmm. except that, okay, maybe it's time to forgive Mel. And that's not something that I can accept as somebody who is reading all of this and taking it in. And I do hope that journalists individually will take that into consideration when They interview celebrities who have these checkered pasts. If you're going to go into this, think about it for a second. Ask some deeper questions. There's no harm in that because if you got a little bit of access, finally, fucking use it. Don't throw it away. Um, Now, over the years, Mel does become a reignited issue when someone reminds us what happened, particularly whenever he has a new project coming out. One of the biggest moments was in 2020 when his film Force of Nature was coming out. At the time, Winona Ryder spoke up about a moment in the 90s when she remembered Mel making anti-Semitic and homophobic comments to her in a conversation. In that conversation, he called her a, quote, oven dodger. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's in reference to the Holocaust. He denied this and called her a liar. But here's the thing. She had actually discussed this exact moment years before, almost a decade before in a magazine interview. And it was never made a big deal back then. All of which suggests it's only as we get more socially conscious Mm -hmm. year by year and after movements like Me Too and BLM that we have better louder conversations about people like Mel and why they no longer deserve a platform. Um, And in response to Wano's comment in 2020, Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, tweeted, quote, Winona's account is another example of Mel's disgusting anti-Semitism and homophobia. But it's not just about hate. The same white male privilege and power that props up a bigot like Gibson also safeguards a system that holds back so many talented, diverse artists. That's a great point. Um, In December 2021, just over a month ago, Mel became a subject once more when Jewish actor Josh Molina, who you'll know from Mm -hmm. Scandal and The West Wing, wrote a wonderful op-ed in The Atlantic titled Cancel Mel Gibson. Why is Hollywood still hiring this raging anti-Semite? In it, he writes, quote, Gibson is a well-known Jew hater. Anti-Semite is too mild. 
His prejudices are well documented. So my question is, what does a guy have to do these days to get put on Hollywood's no-fly list? Uh I'm a character actor. I tend to take the jobs that come my way. But, and this hurts to write, you couldn't pay me enough to work with Mel Gibson. If he can continue to find big bucks and approbation in Hollywood, cancel culture simply does not exist. End quote. Now, in the piece, Josh notes that Jews were the victims in more than 50% of religious-based hate crimes last year in the U.S. And I want to add here that according to Statistics Canada, police-reported hate crimes against Jewish people accounted for the highest number of religion-based hate crime in Canada in 2020. So it's not that different. Josh goes on to write, quote, the fact that this doesn't seem to bother Warner Brothers executives makes me wonder if, to them, Jews don't count. And that's, he's paraphrasing something that the comic David Badil said years before um, in a book of the same name. He adds, Badil, a British Jew, argues that polite society treats anti-Semitism as a semi-acceptable form of prejudice, end quote. And I also want to add here that over the years, after all his scandals, Mel has always been described as a great person to work with by pretty much everybody he's worked with. Um, And at the same time, people have said he has an anger problem, that he's ultra-conservative to a fault. And this is the same person, by the way, who said to Playboy in 1995 that women should not become priests because, quote, men and women are just different. They're not equal. When the interviewer asked for an example of the difference between men and women, Mel elaborated, saying, quote, I had a female business partner once. Didn't work. She was a cunt. No, he's talking about women that he's worked with. He's worked with quite a number of female directors, Mm -hmm. which I will say is rare for a male actor. But it's hard to swallow when you know this is how he feels about working with women. Um, But still, all those transgressions are hidden by the fact that he's profitable and he's supposedly very pleasant to work with. Sarah, how do we process all of this? I don't think we can process this. This is a person who makes no secret about the fact that he just straight up hates women, yeah. right? He, he hits them. He thinks that they are hard to work with, that they're not equal to men. And then when he gets even a little bit drunk, he says incredibly offensive things to, yeah. you know, many communities. He says anti-Semitic things. He's homophobic. So I just feel like even when he's at his best, when he's giving this interview and he's in a professional setting, he's so misogynistic that I really believe he means the other things he says when he's drunk. And I don't think we should be forgiving this person. And I think anybody who's going to knock the teeth out of their partner while that person is holding their daughter, like, I'm not saying it's impossible to rehabilitate such a person, but he hasn't been rehabilitated at all. I see no real evidence that he's actually done the work. I mean, in that interview, you played the clip of he talked about doing the work. What did that mean? Like the work with a PR strategist or the work with a therapist? What he needed was the latter, but I feel like he may have just done the former. Yeah, or just released a statement, which is what celebrities do Uh all the time. They don't actually do anything. They just say they're going to do it because it's lip service. And, you know, one of my favorite points that Josh makes, and I think he's one of the first to say this about Mel, or really in general, is that anti-Semitism is the type of hate that gets the least attention, in Uh Hollywood at least. And, you know, one of the other things that really strikes me is that you have a Jewish actress like Winona Ryder, Mm -hmm. who is a very big name, who spoke up about this. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of the most inflammatory comments that Mel has ever made. I don't even think we need to say it's alleged. We can throw that in there. Mm -hmm. But why Mm -hmm. don't her words hold as, why don't her and Josh Molina's words hold as much weight as someone like Jodie Foster's? 
I don't think it's even that people don't believe what she said was true. I think it's that they don't care. I think it's kind yes. of like Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blase Ford. I think, I mean, even the Republicans in the House, a lot of them believed her that she'd been attacked by someone, but they just didn't really care. Like, they didn't feel like that made Brett Kavanaugh a bad Supreme Court justice nominee. Yeah. And I think that that's true in Hollywood, too. Like, across industries, people don't really care about what happens to women. And they also are very tolerant of anti-Semitism. You know, Winona had her own shitty experiences in Hollywood future episode. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's also a thing that Mel is of a certain generation of movie star. And mm-hmm. we talk about this a lot, that movie stars don't really exist the way they used to since that generation. And Jodie Foster, Whoopi Goldberg, Robert Downey Jr., his biggest supporters are of that era. And I think they will always hold more weight in the public mm-hmm. eye because they just happen to be more popular and more famous and more people know who they are. And that widens their own fan base. Um, and again, as you said, it's the most bankable people who hold the most weight in Hollywood. So while Winona Ryder didn't come too much after them, and she is a movie star in her own right, as you said, she's kind of had her own shit mm-hmm. to deal with. And people have already written her off for years. So it's just, it's unfortunate when you think about who gets credibility and then how they decide to use that credibility and who they decide to lift up. And this brings us to our final segment. Hindsight is 2022, where we choose the one moment that we might have handled differently if we were the subject of this story. I shouldn't have done that. Sarah, what would that be for you? Well... If I were Andrew Garfield, I don't know why I would have made Hacksaw Ridge. I, <laughs> I still was, wonder that. I was reflecting on it. And it, like, I understand for actors who are coming up why they would do something like that. But he was already Spider-Man. He'd worked yeah. with lots of directors. Lots of directors wanted to work with him. He didn't need to do this. He didn't need to do it for the money or for the notoriety. So like, Andrew Garfield develop some standards, like some basic human decency. He's also a younger person. He's not yes. like a person of that generation. Like, I, I don't think there's an excuse for what Jodie Foster did. Like, I actually respect her a lot less because of her association with Mel Gibson. And I I can't get over that. But she at least has the excuse of being older. I mean, Andrew Garfield, like, come on, just read a friggin' newspaper. Yeah, I, but he did get an Oscar nomination for Hacksaw Ridge. I know, so. <laughs> I know. But like, what the hell? Also, the Academy, like, what the hell are all, well, all, I mean, they, well, so the Academy what, they is fucked. Thinking. I mean, they've They're been, they yeah, that's thinking. been a mess for ages. Um, mm-hmm. That's also a whole other episode, but God, I agree yeah. with you. Andrew Garfield is in our generation. He knows exactly what the hell happened. None of us can forget those big moments, the phone calls, the DUI. Those are things everybody remembers. My parents mm-hmm. know those moments. They were that big. Yeah. So I don't know. It's tough. I think that's the other thing. When an actor is presented with this quote-unquote big opportunity and has the potential for an Oscar, they're not going to say no because their personal profit ends up being bigger than the overall situation. And he knew. I mean, Warner Brothers signed on. If Warner Brothers is saying it's okay, why can't Andrew Garfield then say it's okay? That's a rhetorical question. Yeah. Now, I personally wish that all the journalists who were given time with Mel during each major project had the balls to poke him on each of his scandals and made Mm -hmm. them the subjects, not cute bonus points, as we discussed earlier. 
Because when media tells us we can accept this person, we tend to believe it. But we need Mm -hmm. to be reminded of everything that goes as far back as the 90s. Because part of the reason Mel has been redeemed is because he rarely apologizes. In case anyone has not noticed this, he just never does it. And when he does do it, he spends the rest of the time insisting he is the victim in some way. Mm -hmm. He's kind of an expert at this. Um, It's also well known that he tends to bring an assistant along to run interference during interviews if he doesn't like how they're going. And in my opinion, if you're a journalist who runs into this and he refuses to answer questions, you should just refuse the interview. You know, you don't have to interview Mel Gibson. He doesn't have to get more clicks and headlines. Um, And you're giving him attention by doing that. I really think it's that simple. I think we are part of the problem as movie-going audiences, but also as journalists. And we're always going to say this. We all need to face that. There's a part of that in there, too. I I will probably never watch What Women Want again, but I say that. Now, that final note brings us to the end of this episode. Now, if you want to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Sadafasan. Sarah, where can our listeners find you? Oh, listeners can find me at Sarah Sahagian. And if you liked this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe so other listeners can find us too. Thanks for listening. 